I have the privilege of introducing our guest preacher this morning. His name is Kirk Miller. Kirk, if you're wondering, means church. The church. He's a full-time pastor at Crossway, Milwaukee. Uh, Dan Allen is the other full-time pastor there. He has preached here with uh, here as well, and I have come to be very impressed um, with Kirk. He, he has a heart for equipping the church. Uh, he does a regular podcast. In fact, he has invited uh, Eric Tully uh, with Eric's new book that has come out to interview him on that. It's aimed at building the church up. Uh, he is an avid reader. He is a careful thinker. He loves his wife, Annie, and his three children. He loves God's people, the church. He loves God's word, the Bible. You'll hear that come out today. And of course, he loves our Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants to see more and more people become followers of him. He's going to pick up where we left off last week in the second missionary journey of Paul. We stopped off last week with Paul leaving Philippi, and this morning we're going to hear how Paul comes to Thessalonica into Berea. And next week we'll see the gospel come to Athens. So without further ado, Kirk, come up and open up God's word. Children, you are now excused to your classes. Let's hear it from our brother. Good morning. So speaking of my wife, when I asked my wife uh, to marry me, to, when I proposed, I wasn't terribly nervous to ask my wife per se, because I knew what she was going to say. Um, at that point in our, in our dating, it was, it was quite obvious where things were headed. And, and so by, by asking, it was kind of a formality at that point. However, when I um, asked my to-be father-in-law, as kind of the tradition uh, goes, I don't know how many people do that now, but of asking for the, the father's hand, or for the daughter's hand in marriage, um, I was pretty nervous to ask him. And the reason being is because he's a rather uh, interesting fellow, and I had no idea what he was going to say. Um, I really didn't know what he was going to say. And as we think about sharing the gospel with others, as we think about evangelism, I wonder if one of the reasons, there's probably many, but one of the reasons that we sometimes don't share the gospel is that we fear what others are going to say. We fear how they are going to respond. Well, as Mike said, we're continuing your series in Acts this morning. Um, so why don't you turn with me, if you haven't already, to Acts 17. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. And this is a passage that helps us think rightly about how others will respond to our sharing the gospel. Um, I don't know if you guys have the tradition of standing when you read scripture, um, but let's go ahead and do that. Um, that's what we do at Crossway. I guess it's better to do that than not in case you do have that tradition. But Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus 
whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Hopefully you noticed as we read these uh, Two paragraphs, at least as the ESV has it organized for us here, that this passage sets Thessalonica and Berea together in order to cause us to consider their contrasting responses to Scripture's gospel. So the two accounts of these cities are linked and meant to be viewed together. So, for example... You have these Jews in Thessalonica who oppose Paul in Thessalonica, and then they chase him to Berea to oppose him there as well. And so it's not two separate accounts of two unrelated cities, but it's all connected. The whole passage we read is connected by this opposition that chases him from one city to the next. And in, in addition, the text itself sets these two cities in contrast. It wants us to compare the two. Look at verse 11, where it says, Now these Jews, that is the ones in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It's comparing the two. I don't know if you ever had this experience where maybe if you're on social media and you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, and you come across two posts that occur right next to each other, that are by two different people, they're not intended to be next to each other, but they just fit together so incredibly well. Have you ever had that occurrence where it's like, it's almost ironic that they're talking about the exact same thing, but it's completely accidental. It's just curious. Here, that's sort of how the structure is, where we read of Thessalonica and then Berea, except it's not accidental. Luke, the author of Acts, is doing that 
intentionally. And we have other details that sort of add to this parallel, this comparison between the two uh, cities. You notice that Paul goes to the synagogue and preaches in both. In both cities, the passage uses similar language to describe those who respond to Paul by believing. There's mention of Greeks. There's mention of high-standing women. This language of not a few is used in both. And then in both cities, Paul gets, it's the very same language again, Paul immediately gets sent away by the brothers in order to escape the opposition. And so it's like Luke is wanting us to see something of a mirror effect here. On their own, none of these details would necessarily mean anything important, but when you add them up, they, 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 they contribute to this sense. And so the two accounts of the cities are meant to stand in comparison to one another. But what exactly are we meant to be comparing between the two cities? What is that doing to help us understand the point? Well, what Luke seems to be highlighting here in this comparison is how each town has a contrasting response to Paul's biblical, scriptural preaching of the gospel. Specific attention in the passage is given to how the cities respond specifically to the scriptures, notice. So look at verses 2 through 3 with me, where it says, Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them how? From the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Saying then that this Jesus whom he proclaims is that Christ. And some were persuaded, but, but then we also get this violent rejection from the masses. And then you'll notice also the reason stated for why the Thessalonians travel to Berea and oppose Paul. In verse 13, why do they chase him all the way to Berea? Well, verse 13 says that when the Jews from Thessalonica learned what? That the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul there as well. That's the reason that they, they, they came there too. And they agitated and stirred up the crowd. And then of course the comparison verse in, in verse 11. Where, he, where, Paul, where Luke actually tells us the reason for why he's comparing these two. Not only does he say in verse 11 that the Jews were more noble. But then we have to ask, well how? How were they more noble? He says they received the word with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, and many of them therefore believed. And so, what our passage today, what God in this, his word this, of this text today is trying to tell us, I believe, is this. God wants us to know that as the biblical gospel of Jesus is preached, it is going to be both received and rejected. Don't be caught off guard, Christian, that as the biblical gospel of Christ is preached, we should expect it to be both received and rejected. We get a picture of both in this passage. And I want you to think about Luke's original audience, the people who first received the book of Acts. Luke's audience, these early Christians, likely included those who experienced this sort of mixed response to their own sharing of the gospel, reception and rejection. And so they needed to hear a passage like this and to know that that when the masses reject their message, that this is not somehow indicative of failure or that something has gone wrong. Rather, as this passage shows us, 
This is the normal experience of those who herald the gospel. It will be received by some and rejected by many. Let's dig into some of the details of this reception and rejection to help us feel some of the weight of what's going on here. So on the one hand, the first response, quite simply, is that the positive response of reception is that the Bereans, for example, examines, they examine the scriptures and they do so eagerly. On the other hand, what does the rejection look like? What, does, what characterizes the nature of the rejection? Well, the Thessalonians accuse the Christians of being dangerous, you'll notice. They say of the Christians that they are, quote, turning the world upside down. But what was that accusation rooted in? Well, look at verse 7. They accuse the Christians of acting against the decrees of Caesar. How so? Well, they said there is another king, Jesus. In other words, they accuse the Christians of plotting insurrection or of following an alternative king. Christians are rebels against the government. You see, the Christians, they preach that Jesus was the Christ, as we saw Paul doing. Christ is another word for Messiah. You see verse, thir- verse 3, where Paul sought to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And Christ, or Messiah, if you're familiar, is a kingly title, among other things. It, it, it means one who is anointed, just as kings in Israel were anointed. And so to call Jesus the Christ, or Messiah, is to call Jesus the true king, God's anointed king. And so this charge against the Christians was both simultaneously true and false. Of course, Christ really is the king. And this really does challenge Caesar's authority, and all rulers for that matter. Rulers of this world are not the ultimate ruler of this world. They do not lay claim to our ultimate allegiance as Christians. And so in that sense, it's true. We are saying Jesus is the king and any Caesar that exists is not. And no doubt the gospel does and it will turn the world upside down. Just not necessarily in the way that these folks were thinking. And so on the one hand, there is something very true to the accusation. But on the other hand, it's also a false accusation based on a significant misunderstanding. Christ's kingdom, as he told Pilate at his trial, is not of this world. In other words, we don't take up arms and fight. We don't use the world's method of kingdom advancement. Jesus' kingdom is of a different nature entirely. And likewise, its method of warfare, so to say, are going to be different. We don't seek to overthrow governing authorities. Rather, our king tells us to submit to them. We don't fight against flesh and blood, as Paul said in Ephesians 6. Rather, the crux of our battle is, as he says, spiritual. Even as, of course, our king's kingdom has implications for all of life and society. You can think about the early church. If you're familiar with the early church, these sort of misunderstandings were nothing uh, unusual. In the early church, we have accounts that, that Christianity very early on was misunderstood and falsely accused. For example, the early church was accused of being cannibals. Can you guess why? Because of what we just did. We, we practiced the Lord's Supper. 
And, and, and the non-Christians hear that they're eating someone's body and blood. Well, that sounds a little bit odd. Or Christians get accused of atheism. Well, how could Christians get accused of atheism? Well, Christians refuse to worship the Roman gods. Therefore, it seems like they deny the gods. They must be atheists. Of course, a misunderstanding. Or Christians were accused of incest because they would love their brothers and sisters. Christians called each other brothers and sisters, and they showed love to one another. These are all misunderstandings, of course, but things that were leveled against the Christians. And today, we experience the same sort of thing, just different examples, right? I think the, 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 the two that come immediately to my mind are, are Christian sexual ethics and our views on gender. At best, Christians are seen as prudish, and at worst, and quite commonly, we're seen as bigoted or having an, an, an irrational hate for certain people that is seen as akin to racism. And so this is the sort of example we expect the Christian gospel to meet. Now, when we look at the, that's the outward form of the, of the rejection, though. Let's now look at the inward nature of that rejection as we dissect it. Okay? So, ironically, I just want you to notice, ironically, is even as these people accuse the Christians of being dangerous, dangerous to society, isn't it ironic that they're actually the ones, though, who start the mob of rabble-rousers? They're the ones who set the city in, in an uproar in Thessalonica. And then as they make their way to Berea, they agitate and they stir up the crowds there as well. So, so the irony is that if anyone's a threat to the peace of society, it, it, it's these Thessalonican Jews, not the Christians. And the sort of the tone of this passage, as they start mobs and they chase after Paul to the next town, it all gives us this sense of the intensity and the ridiculousness of the degree to which these Thessalonians oppose Paul's message. It shows us their persistence, even the irrational degree of their resistance, conveying how badly, to what great extents they're willing to go in order to oppose the gospel. They're going to they're gonna hit the road in order to oppose the gospel. And we see why. We see their internal motive in verse 5 when it says that these Jews were jealous I don't know if you've noticed this if you've been working through the book of Acts, but that theme of jealousy as motivating opposition is one that exists all throughout the book. That people oppose the Christian message, particularly the Jewish leaders, out of jealousy. What does this do? Well, this highlight, this highlight of their motivation, that Luke wants us to see their motivation, jealousy, it shows us, it, it, it gives us an example of the fact that when people resist the gospel, it is not, at least not merely, an intellectual problem. Its most foundational root is a moral and spiritual problem. As Paul says, in our unbelief, we suppress the truth. It's actually a moral problem when we reject the gospel. It's not just that we might find things difficult to believe in the gospel. That can be true, of course. But more importantly, it's when we don't believe the gospel, it's because we don't want to believe the gospel. John Stott, at the beginning of his little book, Basic Christianity, it's a great little book to hand to a, to a non-believing friend to read with them. Um, he just kind of presents the case for Christianity, very simple form, what do Christians believe. And in the beginning of that book, he talks about a conversation he had with a young, young skeptic, someone who grew up in the church but since rejected the faith. And John Stott says, 
that as he was talking to him, he said this. He said, if I were to answer all your objections, your problems, to your complete intellectual satisfaction, would you be willing to alter your manner of life? And the, the young man smiled and blushed because his real problem, Stott says, was not intellectual, but moral. The real reason he didn't believe wasn't because he had all these objections. Those were just a front. The real reason is that he didn't want to live. He didn't want to believe. He didn't want to live as if the gospel was true. That would demand things of him. Or Tim Keller recently said that when people tell me that they were once believing Christians, but they have now rejected it, this sort of deconversion trend that we've been seeing, he often asks them after listening, of course, to them, after listening for a while, he asks them why they originally believed that Jesus rose from the dead and how they came to decide that now he didn't. In other words, just as Mike was saying, our Christian faith is built in, it's rooted in historical reality. Oftentimes when people depart from the Christian faith, it's not because all of a sudden they became convinced that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Oftentimes it has to do with some sort of moral issue going on inside, some sort of spiritual issue that they don't want to believe for some sort of reason. On the other hand, in this passage, we see that those who do respond rightly to the gospel, those who do receive the gospel, what's going on inside of them? You've looked at the outward sort of response, but what's going on inside of them? Well, we see that God is softening their hearts. God is causing them to, to trust in him. Look at verse 4. It's very subtle. It says that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. This word, that's, that, this word joined is actually a word that, that can mean to be assigned. It's passive. It's not they joined themselves, but they were joined. And the, the language has this idea of being assigned. In other words, who's doing the assigning? It's God. We see elsewhere Luke uses this language throughout the book where he talks about conversion being attributed to God's activity. It's something that God is doing. Acts 2.41, those who received the word of the gospel were added, passive. They didn't add themselves ultimately, but God added them. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number those who were being passive, being saved. It's the Lord adding. Um, Acts 11.18, the Lord granted repentance to the Gentiles like Cornelius. 1348, uh, those who believe, Luke says, they were appointed to eternal life. And then 1614, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to pay attention to Paul. And so when we share the gospel, we understand that we must rely on God to do that work. He will bring about that response to the gospel of saving faith. And so what have we seen today? We have seen a tale of two cities, Thessalonica and Berea and their contrasting responses to the biblical gospel. And so, believer, do not be caught off guard. As the biblical gospel of Christ is preached, even by you, it will be both received and rejected. The book of Acts outlines the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. I think you guys have, yeah, Acts 1-8 there. Sort of this programmatic verse for the book up on the slides. It, it outlines wh what the book is going to show us. It's going to show the gospel going from Jerusalem. That's really the first 
uh, like seven chapters, right? And then we go to, to Judea and Samaria in chapter 8, and then to the ends of the earth. By the end of the book, Paul is going to end up in Rome. That's the end of the earth. The Roman Empire. The gospel will have spread. It's a very triumphant um, programmatic statement. Like We're expecting great things. And we should. But we would be wrong to assume that as this testimony, as this witness goes out, as, as Christ calls the apostles and by extension us to be witnesses to the end of the earth, we would be wrong to assume that this testimony will go out and be met with universal acceptance. It will certainly prevail in reaching all peoples and all regions. But that is not to say that it's going to be embraced by every single person. In a passage like this, Acts 17, 1 through 15, I think it exists in part, even primarily, to help us to understand that rejection is a normal feature of what happens when the gospel spreads. And so it's not cause for concern as if something has gone wrong. No, this is par for the course. And we see this theme across all of scriptures, right? The rejection of God's message is a theme throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think one of the, one of the a, a, a fantastic example of this, for instance, is Isaiah 6. The, the passage where we maybe like to talk about this in mission conference, where, where Isaiah has the vision of God and, and, and he says, here am I, send me. But as he's commissioned to be a prophet in that moment, um, God actually tells him, you're going to go and preach and people are not going to believe. The message is going to be rejected. This is a passage that Jesus quotes, for example, in Matthew 13 or in Mark 4, um, the parable of the soils. Do you know that parable? Where, where it, really, it's a parable that is given to explain why Jesus is rejected. Is it concerned that the Messiah is rejected? What does that mean? Can, a, can the Messiah be rejected? Wouldn't that be contradictory to what the Messiah is? Doesn't the Messiah need to be received by his people so he can reign? But, but, but our expectations are flipped because this Messiah is rejected. And so the parable of the soils show that as the seed of the gospel goes out in different soils, not all of the soils are going to receive it. And Paul actually quotes this the, the parable of the soils, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 to explain that. And Paul does the same thing at the end of the book of Acts. Turn to the end of the book of Acts. When Paul finally reaches Rome in Acts 28, he says in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should set, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so he explains, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, God is actually using the rejection of the gospel, to see the gospel spread to different peoples. This is, a, this is a major theme in the book of Acts, that as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, rejection is actually a part of that spread. I think it's interesting to compare Christianity at this point maybe to like an, a religion like Islam. I don't know if you're aware of this, but at least I've read that um, one of the arguments um, 
Muslims will use, Islamic scholars will use to argue for Islam's, Islam's veracity, it, it's the fact that they believe it's a true religion that is, is because they argue for the success of the religion. See how much it spread. See how Muhammad and his followers were able to conquer and, and, and spread their religion. Christianity's fabric, if you will, is very different than that. It's counterintuitive. We expect rejection. Our, 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 the, the, the Jesus we worship is a rejected Messiah. He took up his cross, and we likewise take up our cross. The servant is not greater than the master. If they hated him, they're going to hate us. And so this theme of rejection that runs all throughout the scriptures, I think it finds its greatest expression, of course, ultimately in Christ, the one who is at the heart of this gospel that is rejected. Because he himself the very person of the gospel was rejected. Think again of the parable of the tenants. If you remember this one from Matthew 21, where Jesus talks about this this vineyard, and the picture of this vineyard, there's these people that get hired to take care of the vineyard. That vineyard is a picture of Israel, and and the people who are supposed to take care of it are the leaders within Israel. And and the owner of the vineyard is God, and God sends, sends different people to go check on the vineyard. And those represent the prophets who are rejected. But finally, he sends his son, and that son is killed. Isaiah 53 prophesied this, that the Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, he was despised and noticed, rejected by men, verse 3. And his rejection was not a mistake, within the plan of God. His rejection meant our salvation. As verse 5 goes on in Isaiah 53, it says that Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. But before a holy God, we deserve his judgment and his wrath. We deserve for our transgressions to be pierced. We deserve for our iniquities to be crushed. And yet, he takes that on himself as the sacrificial system shows, the the sacrifices. They bear those transgressions. They bear those iniquities. They suffer death for the sinner. And so Christ is that sacrificial atonement for us bearing our iniquities, bearing our transgressions, so that then in exchange, what do we get? We get to be healed. We get peace with God for all those who trust then, not on themselves, but on Christ. And none of this was a mistake. This was all part of the plan. Even as we see from Paul's own preaching in this passage, what did he say in verse 3? He says, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Even the the Messiah was rejected and suffered and died. And that same rejection then reverberates throughout history as this Christ is preached. The preaching of Christ, that is the gospel as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, is an aroma to some of life. And to others, it's the aroma of death. Or Psalm 118 said that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. But the very stone that the builders rejected, God has made into the cornerstone of his saving temple project. 
So do not be caught off guard, believers. It's not as though something has gone wrong. The rejection of the preached gospel then is no more an aberration in the plan of God than the rejection of Christ was. Both are within God's plan and serve his purposes as the gospel goes forward. It is to be expected that he will both be accepted and rejected. And so why do we need a passage like this? What is God seeking to get done through a passage like this in our lives? What what, what need do we have that God is addressing for us here? I have three. First, I think it helps set our expectations in sharing the gospel. We should anticipate mixed results. That as we share the gospel, we anticipate and we expect a mixed response of reception and rejected. We are confident in our evangelism, unwavering in our evangelism then, regardless of the response. Our confidence in evangelism doesn't hinge on the response because we expect to be rejected. We don't let that shake us. We don't let the pressures of oppositions tempt us to curtail or compromise the message. But we confidently and unwaveringly give witness to the gospel on the basis of scripture despite the response. So as I was thinking about this passage and trying to preach this passage to myself, I was just thinking to myself, like, why in those moments where I don't share the gospel or don't share it as boldly as I, as I would want, why is that? What's going on in my heart? And how does a passage like this help address some of that? Charles uh, Bridges, uh, this Puritan preacher, this Anglican preacher, he wrote a a great book called The Christian Ministry. It's about pastoral ministry. And he has a section in there called The Trials and Difficulties of Christian Ministry. And in this section, the, the trials and difficulties of preaching the gospel is really what he means. He talks about a twofold temptation that we can experience. On the one hand, we can be tempted by the world's opposition to kind of pull back our preaching of the gospel because we're afraid of the opposition. On the other hand, though, I think this is interesting, we can also face temptation from the world's flattery, as he calls it, this draw to be liked and to have the world's approval. In both cases, we face a temptation to pull back on our evangelism and maybe compromise our message. And so how much do I find myself And ask this of yourself as well. How much do I find myself contorting my Christian witness in order to be accepted or avoid opposition? You see, sometimes we fall prey to this sort of thinking. That if in in fact we face opposition or ridicule as we share the gospel, then maybe we think to ourselves that something has gone terribly wrong. Like, that's not right, God. I shouldn't have to be treated like that. We want the benefits of Christ's cross without having to bear our own cross. That that, that this is not how it's supposed to go, God. We need to learn, and I think increasingly so, to expect rejection, to expect resistance in our Christian mission. In fact, we need to become okay with being weird in the eyes of friends, family, and coworkers if we're ever going to be faithful. We're simultaneously citizens and foreigners in society. And if we're to live faithfully, that will inevitably result in this experience of dissonance, disconnect between us and others. You see, the problem is, if we so desire the world's approval, we so put that on a pedestal, 
then when they shame and reject us for our message, we will be distraught. It's going to wreck us. Instead of saying, oh yeah, well that's just to be expected, it will become a point of deep existential crisis for us. Some of our paralysis, our inhibition to share the gospel may, I think, in part be due to this, that we're so intimidated, maybe embarrassed, or can I even say ashamed, by the prospect of rejection. But friends, this is the call of the faithful Christian in a foreign world. We do not seek the approval of this world, we seek the approval of Christ and so we need to recover something of what Paul said in Romans 1.16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power to save all those who believe. Secondly, a passage like this helps us have confidence that the mission will succeed, notwithstanding how people receive the gospel. A passage like this bolsters our witness as we gain increased confidence in the gospel's success, notwithstanding how any particular individual responds to it. As we saw, God is the one who softens the heart. We rely ultimately on him in our evangelism. Or as we will get to, as you guys will get to in Acts 18 verses 9 through 10, when Paul gets uh, to, let me see, I didn't write the city down, is it Corinth? Yes, Corinth. God is going to show up to Paul in, in, in a night vision, and he's going to tell Paul, do not be afraid. Why? Go on speaking the gospel. Don't be silent, because I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. And then he says this, for I have many in the city who are my people. I have people I'm going to save, Paul. It doesn't mean everybody who hears your, your, your message is going to believe, but I have people I'm going to save. So keep on preaching. And then the book of Acts, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's sort of uh, structured by these summary statements about the word progressing. And in some ways, the book of Acts, that one of the main characters is actually the word of the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. So at the end of this section, in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 20, we get one of those summary statements, 19:20. So the word that is the gospel of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So even after the rejection here, the word is still progressing. It's still going forward. The mission of God is going to prevail regardless, even through, as we saw, people's rejection and opposition. And then lastly, the third response I think we should consider is our own. This passage should cause us to consider what is my own response to the gospel? Am I responding to the gospel more like the Thessalonians who opposed it or more like the Bereans who eagerly examined the scriptures and therefore believed in the suffering Christ? You see, the gospel is not one dish at a buffet table of religious options from which you can select whatever quote-unquote works for you. The gospel according to God's word is a divine summons. It is God's demand on you to believe on Christ. Because there is no other salvation. As Peter said, there's no other name given from heaven by which we must trust. It's God's, Christ is God's appointed cornerstone, as we saw. There is no other cornerstone. There is no other way of salvation.